Hello, we are now over two months into the horror, which has, of course, enveloped Gaza since the 7th of October attack on Israel. And the number of civilians who've died is biblical in nature. Um, reliable, credible estimates suggest perhaps 1% of Gaza's population has been killed since the 7th of October. Now, a brilliant piece of investigative journalism, and it really is superb and everyone should read it, by Plus972 Mag and Local Call, uh, which is entitled A Mass Assassination Factory Inside Israel's Calculated Bombing of Gaza, exposes from the inside, based on sources working in Israel's intelligence community, corroborated by Palestinian testimonies and using data, crucially, how this machine works, this factory. And I'm delighted to have Yuval Abraham, an Israeli investigative journalist, who worked on this fantastic piece of work. Firstly, hello, Yuval, great to speak to you. Hi, it's good to be here. Thank you, Owen. Um, so firstly, these sources, how did you get these sources located in the intelligence community? Yeah, I mean, it took a while. Um, I think there are a few reasons why they agreed to speak. I think one reason is that really the scale of the destruction now happening in Gaza is is so so big. We, we, we all can see it, right? That even people who are part of that system, who are there, felt um, like they were shocked, right? They all came after the collective trauma, the massacres of Hamas on October seventh. But as they began to see what they were asked to do, um, many sources felt um, that it was honestly unjustifiable, and they. There's not a lot of Israeli journalists who are, who are now being critical of the military. Um, it's almost a taboo subject. And we at Plus972 Magazine, you know, we are a Palestinian-Israeli media outlet. We're, we're very, very critical. And yeah, that's pretty much, yeah. Can you explain what you uncovered, how this, what you describe as a mass assassination factory, how does it work in practical terms? Sure, yes. So the term mass assassination factory... Um, alludes to this trend in the military that has been going on for the past few years to really automate a large part of the target creation process in Gaza. So not all of that process is automated, but large parts are automated. Now, you know, Gaza is under Israeli control. It's under occupation. Israel controls, obviously, you know, the, 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 the electromagnetic space, the airspace, the lands, the sea, who gets in, what gets in. And that creates an opportunity for basically accessing almost infinite amounts of information. When you have almost endless amounts of information and you have artificial intelligence and automated software to sort of try to make targets for bombing from this information, that allows Israel to carry out you know, assassinations on a massive scale, knowingly killing the process hundreds and thousands of civilians. So, uh, yeah, that's in a nutshell. There's a lot to it. So, yeah. So in that, I mean, yeah. one of the things you discuss is how the ratio of what is seen as an acceptable number of civilians per military target has shifted. So before it would have been dozens, but now it's hundreds per military target. Yeah, you know, so one of the sources that I spoke with who was actually shocked by this said that, you know, he, he, he actually cried when he was talking about this and and and, and he said that um there are they're now you know knowingly allowed to kill several hundred Palestinian civilians um in order to carry out an assassination attempt against one senior commander of Hamas 
And this, you know, changed because in the, the army has this concept called collateral damage degrees, which is the way the army regulates the killing of civilians, right? So this was in place also in previous operations. So if, if you know, soldiers know that they are now operating under collateral damage degree number five, then they know that alongside every target, they are allowed, right, by the military, authorized to kill five civilians or less. In this operation, after October 7th, really many of these protocols were abandoned, as you said, from dozens to hundreds of civilians being knowingly killed. And also in terms of just the protocol, right, one source recalled how they would get a pinpointing of the target where, you know, a target is safe for assassination, and it's not accurate. So they're not sure. It's a very wide radius, right? In the past, protocol would say, well, we have to pinpoint it because we're dropping bombs that, that are burning houses. So now that source said they were often just bombing very wide radiuses, not spending time to save time, right? Not spending time. And again, knowingly, the killing of civilians happens uh, uh, knowingly. They know they are, they are going to kill civilians in the process. It's not a mistake. In terms of when we just find a military target, now, some might think to themselves, we're talking there maybe someone at the very core of a Hamas leadership. But how's that defined? Because in this work, it suggests this could actually be a Hamas member who isn't actually particularly consequential, is judged to be an acceptable target, and they're targeted at home, not in a tunnel, for example. And that may well include wiping out their entire family, including a baby, children, yeah. whoever they yeah. Yeah. So obviously there are many different categories of targets, right? Some could be more legitimate under international law, some could be less legitimate. I think what you've described for me is, you know, and I think the investigation suggests it, is an extremely illegitimate target where you knowingly drop a bomb that weighs a ton on, on a house of somebody who is part of Hamas's uh, um, military army, but they are not in a place where fighting actually takes place, right? They're at home. Um, and you kill not only that person, you kill all of his family members and often all the neighbors in the building. One source that actually did this told me that when he was doing it, he thought it would be like if when Israeli soldiers go back home on the weekend to their families and you know go to sleep and meet their parents and a militant group would bomb their homes, killing all of their families and then claim that they were using their families as human shields. And when you have AI and when you have these capabilities to sort of create these sorts of targets on a massive, massive scale, that could be partially, it's not the only reason, but part of the reason why, you know, the, the destruction in Gaza is so, so massive right now. When one of the sources you quote, this really struck me, nothing happens by accident when a three-year-old girl is killed in a home in Gaza is because someone in the army decided it wasn't a big deal for her to be killed that it was a price worth paying in order to hit another target. We are not Hamas. These are not random rockets. Everything is intentional. We know exactly how much collateral damage there is in every home. So it's not as though they bomb, a house is bombed, they're like, well, oh, we find it afterwards. Oh, whoops. But actually, yeah. in advance, that is known. Yeah, yeah. It's part It's part of the way you, you create targets. Like you're going to say, you know, the target has this and this amount of people in it. And I think what's interesting, I mean, I mean, what you've said is, is a completely accurate quote. And what's interesting is that that source actually used the words a three-year-old child with me. And that shows that that source was really thinking it through. Because in the military, you know, 
nobody's going to say child, right? They, they, they say a word in Hebrew, it's called uh, naza. That's what they say. And it, and it basically is an abbreviation of collateral damage. So it's spoken about as, as really, you know, oh, how much naza does the target have? It has eight. Well, let's see if we can make it five. Oh, so it, it, the language that is used in these spaces obviously dehumanizes. It, 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 it masks reality. And I think, and I feel this personally as well. You know, I have a good friend in Gaza who lost, you know, all of his family were, were killed by Israel. And for me, we all talk about politics all the time, right? But for me, this is also a very emotional thing. If you, if you have empathy for humans who are living there, um, you cannot accept this war tactic. It's impossible. You know, you, you cannot rationalize it. And I'm okay. We can, ration, we can talk ra rationales. I'm, 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 I'm completely fine with it. But it's important to remember, I think, the, the human emotional side of it and how you need to mask that, you know, in order to carry out such a policy. One of the big narratives of this whole hideous horror show, which has been going on for the last two months, goes like this, that Hamas goes out of its way to deliberately kill innocent civilians, uh, despite its public denials. Um, I've watched myself video footage of them killing innocent civilians. Um, Israel, on the other hand, does not seek to kill innocent civilians. Um, if innocent civilians are killed, that is unfortunate, but it is not the intention of Israel, and therefore there is a moral distinction, even if the scale of killing by Israel is much, much bigger. What does your work tell us about that whole narrative and that claimed moral distinction? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I've been really thinking about it myself for quite some time. I have two responses for you. I mean, the first is that I think that from the perspective of the child, right, that is being killed, whether it is by Hamas or, or by Israel, right, it doesn't really matter. Right. When we look when the mother that, you know, her children die, do they care, you know, how that happened? So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that it, it is true. I mean, this, this idea of intentionality is, is playing such a major role in the way the West understands violence and in international law as well. But I think that when you look at a system um, like Israel's system, where you have a loose definition of what a military target is. When you knowingly, right, you knowingly are not killing, you know, a few, you're killing hundreds of civilians knowingly to strike one target. When you can do that, you can multiply that, you know, using artificial intelligence. When you have all of these factors combined, does intentionality even matter anymore? Or does it play such a big role as we ascribe to it? I personally think that my evidence suggests that it doesn't. Right. There is a complete disregard. This, this, you know, I, I, I hear it from from not one source. I've spoken to seven. You know, there is a disregard for Palestinian civilian life. This is this is this is I think the only thing that sort of limits Israeli actions and international audiences should know this. The only thing is international pressure, especially U.S. pressure, but also uh, countries like the U.K. Um, yeah. I mean, I can go. I mean, well, well, well linked, linked to that is the question of terrorism, because Hamas is obviously well, it's officially classified as a terrorist organization by the UK, the US and the European Union. And of course, if you use violence um, against civilian populations in order to achieve political goals, well, I mean, you can see why the definition of terrorism yeah. is, is reached. Yeah. Yeah. But the issue here is what you talk about in the 
brilliant piece of work you've done called the Dahia Doctrine, which was initially enacted in the Second Lebanon War 2006. And this is regarding something called power targets, which I'll ask you to define, where over a thousand, more than a thousand power targets were cut. The idea of causing mass uh, devastation to civilian areas for strategic purposes. And the idea was that this would create a civilian from civil society in Lebanon or indeed in Gaza, where people would put public pressure on either Hezbollah in Lebanon or on Hamas in Gaza. And I suppose I would put to you, firstly, obviously, define power targets. But secondly, yeah. isn't that terrorism? If you're using violence against civilian against civilians in order to achieve a political goal, what's the difference? Yeah, I mean, you know, so power targets are officially defined by the military. The official narrative, right, is that it's high-rise buildings, so it's residential high-rises. You know, Gaza has, it's one of the most densely populated places on Earth. 70% of the population are refugees. So they don't have, they're building up, right? So there are a lot of these high-rises. And the military says, you know, we're bombing these high-rises. They have said so in the past because there is something in the building that we have marked as a military target. And that legitimizes the bombing of that building. Now, I've spoken to three independent sources in Israeli intelligence who have in previous operations, not, not in this one, in previous ones, either planned or bombed power targets. So they have a deep knowledge of this tactic. And they told me that not only was the idea here to place, to bomb these uh, um, high rises, you evacuate the families, but you des destroy the entire high rise back in the time, right? To put civilian, to put pressure on civilian society. The concept of having a military target in the high rise was used as a way to mask that, right? So they, they speak about how, and, and it shows you, it, again, it comes back to this idea of intentionality. It, they would find something in the high rise that can be associated with Hamas. It's not something that's considered of high military value, a spokesperson's office, okay? Or something like that, right? And because they have this chokehold of intelligence, because Hamas is embedded in Palestinian society, because they, they have also, you know, built some military infrastructure in civilian areas, you can, if you want to, you can pretty much, you know, mark almost not every building, but probably most of the buildings in Gaza and, and, and bomb them. Hmm. And by masking, you know, so one source said that he felt they were doing something that for him resembles terrorism, right? Because he but said... Just to, just to quote that, if they would tell the whole world that Islamic jihad offices on the 10th floor not put as a target, but its existence is a justification to bring down the entire high-rise with the aim of pressuring civilian families who live in it in order to put pressure on terrorist organizations, this would itself be seen as terrorism. And they added, so they do not say it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sources told me that they were you know, bombing these buildings because it was a way to make civilians in Gaza feel like Hamas is losing control, right? To make civilians in Gaza feel like their leadership betrayed them, to make them film these, you know, super iconic high rises and post them on social media. And that creates deterrence. This is the way they thought about it. Now, look, in the past, in 2021, they bombed a high rise that had the AP and AFP media outlets. Perhaps you remember. Sources have told me that was a power target. Right. So in 2021, they bombed uh, nine power targets and they evacuated them from civilians because the idea was to destroy the buildings, not kill the civilians. Now, in this operation, the military has said on the fifth day that they bombed 50 percent of the targets. The military bomb were defined as power targets, more than a thousand. So from nine to over a thousand. Now, I haven't spoken to the sources who bombed power targets this time. I don't know, you know if the same evacuation protocols were in place. 
looking at the hundreds of children who were killed, looking at examples of high rises that were bombed while civilians were inside, while journalists were inside. I am assuming, right, and this, I mean, investigative journalists are welcome to continue this work. I think there's a lot to uncover here. I'm assuming that these power targets were bombed without the same type of evacuation protocol. Again, killing civilians for a type of target that, as you say, its focus is on harming the civilian population, not uh, a military target in previous operations. I mean, just quickly, before I ask my final question, I mean, it is striking that with such an extraordinary death toll and the official death toll, which has been validated in previous conflicts because people try and discredit them because of the Hamas-run administration being around 16,000, but there are bodies buried under the rubble. So others suggest it's over 20,000 now killed. But privately, they only think between 1,000 and 3,000 armed militants out of a much, much bigger force has been wiped out. What does that tell us about this whole AI-generated military strategy? Well, I think I think in a way it, it it helps us understand that you know I'm bringing all of these intelligence officers who are, who are saying things that are quite obvious, right? At the end of the day, it's quite obvious to anybody who looks at what's going on in Gaza, who looks at it with human eyes, who notices the data that you've pointed out, who speaks to Palestinians. Um, I'm not sure. Like, I don't think that the revelations are extraordinary in the sense that they're you know revealing something that probably you know somebody who is critical has not thought of. But it shows that people in the system are also aware of this. And that's important because we are hearing this um, narrative, right? That Israel is doing everything in its power to not harm civilians in Gaza. And you know, as an Israeli and as a journalist, I just have to say that that is not true. Just finally, what I did want to allude to is, and I start by just to circle back to the beginning, just in terms yeah. of co how courageous, I mean, I'm sure you don't like to be complimented like this. And, and we do have to remember, of course, the very courageous Palestinian journalists actually in Gaza who are being killed with, my colleagues in the British media and the Western media, most of them barely saying anything about them. But it is very courageous what you're doing in the atmosphere in Israel. I just want you just quickly, just in terms of what the atmosphere is actually like in Israel for this kind of journalism, is what appetite exists. And I think partly linked to it is the fact that um, it's, it's this sense of actually, not only is there dehumanization, you always get in these situations, it's nothing specific to this horror, but the way the coverage people getting it's almost like buildings are being destroyed but not people so just think you know what's the atmosphere like to publish something like this in the current yeah. given the discourse in israel yeah i mean look i actually spoke to my mother like a few days ago and and she said she feels we are the entire society is reliving october 7th again and again and again and i think you can understand that i mean you yeah. know really yeah. the atrocities committed by hamas the murders um the hostages that that many of them are still there uh and 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 on on top of you know, fifteen years that Gaza has been under siege, um, complete separation, a regime of inequality and apartheid. That you know, I have, I have, I'm I'm sitting here in Jerusalem, right? Palestinians, most of them cannot even get to Jerusalem, right? There there is complete 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 inequality between us, and that has created, you know, high levels of dehumanization. I think even you can see it on both sides, right? And now to come to the Israeli society with this report, most of them, I feel, didn't really care. Like, you know, polls show that 60% uh, of Israelis, roughly 60%, think that the military is not using enough force in Gaza. There is around 1.5% of Israelis that think that it's using too much force. So we're not seeing the images that the world is seeing from Gaza on the news. 
and we are collectively traumatized. And I think, honestly, we need the help of the world to stop this war and to start addressing the core political issues at hand and reach an equality and you know equal sovereignty between Israelis and Palestinians. I think it's a really brilliant point, particularly about empathy and humanity, which has been stripped away from the way we often discuss this. And just finally, again, this is extremely courageous journalism. I think when the history is written of what's happened, what you've done here will be an absolute core plank um, of what's happened. It's been validated, as I said, corroborated by the Guardian newspaper um, as well. Um, but it was brilliant work. Um, thank you so much to you, Val. Please like and subscribe and do share this video and get the get the word out. But thank you, Val. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah.